All right, well, we are in our second week through the journey uh, to the letter of 1 Corinthians. And this week, Paul is going to address a very serious matter that's taking place in the church, something that we might all be familiar with. Back in 2015, Tom Rayner, he's the president of Lifeway, he did a poll where he asked some of the craziest reasons that people have seen church splits. Now, we have the typical ones like the color of the carpet or the paint on the walls, but there are three that really stood out to me. The first one that caused church division and church split was over which picture of Jesus to hang in the foyer. You have the classic of this one, or my personal favorite, Jesus and the guy with blue jeans. Mom likes to tell this story about when I was a kid, I was probably like seven or eight, and we ran into this picture at Lifeway, and I was just staring at it, and Mom said, John, what's wrong? And I said, I didn't know the Romans wore blue jeans. <laughs> it didn't comprehend with me. But the church split because they argued over which picture of Jesus to hang in the foyer. What I want to know is who got the picture? How do they know what Jesus looked like? Caused a great church split. The second one that was really funny to me, Dad, you'll appreciate this, is that they had a church split because one day they used Welch's cran grape instead of the pure Welch's grape juice. It caused a split in the church, division, people left over it. <clears throat> the last one that I thought was funny, but kind of made a little sense, not to have a division over it, but I kind of get where they're going in that line of argument, was for dinner on the ground. Instead of to have a pot luck, it needs to be called pot blessing, because we don't believe in luck. We believe in blessing from the Lord. And so it caused a split among the church. One really interesting story actually comes down from my own family's line of a church split, where my great-grandfather, he was a deacon of a Baptist church in Port Berry, they were having business meeting, and he brought before the church that his sister was pregnant uh, with a child that, from a, a man that was not her husband, and that they needed to exercise church discipline over that. Well, his sister happened to also be in the congregation and stood up and pulled a pistol on everyone in the church. She held it up to her brother and the deacons, and she said, I'm giving you a decision. It's either him or it's me. It's either me or it's him. Guess which way the vote went? In favor of the gun. They de-deked him. They got him out of the church. Split the church. Some of these things move from comical to really rather serious. And I know that if you've been in church long enough, you've probably seen your own church splits that have happened within a church. They're painful, they hurt, and they cause a lot of long-lasting damage. Isn't it interesting that as we open up the letter to 1 Corinthians, there's a lot that's going on in this church, from sexual immorality uh, to divisions over uh, what to eat to uh, denying the physical resurrection, saying it's only going to be a spiritual resurrection. Isn't it interesting that the first thing that Paul addresses is divisions in the church? Isn't that fascinating? You'd think he would swing to something that we would think of a, a more of a capital S sin, something that was really wrong, some, a very particular member in the church that he would address that first. But the very first thing that he addresses is divisions in the church. And I believe for Paul, this is one of those big capital S sins that we all need to be on guard for. Why? It's because divisions in the church comes from an improper view of yourself 
which distorts your view of Christ and distorts your view of others. If I don't see Christ rightly, I won't see myself rightly, and I won't see my, other, my friends or my church members rightly, which elevates pride within me. If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and in verse 10, we will see Paul's goal in this verse. With the visions that are happening in the church, we're going to see what Paul's goal is in verse 10. It says this. I'll give you a second to turn there. I think I do have it on the screen if you're not there yet. In verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Let what Paul is saying hit us. Here's what he's asking for the church to be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now, I have a confession to make. That seems impossible, doesn't it? I mean, maybe Paul, like, maybe something was just different in that culture then. And if he saw 2023, like, with vaccines and COVID and the political fights that happened, maybe Paul would soften, like, maybe just agree partially in, in mind and thought. No, Paul tells us to agree perfectly in mind and thought. If Paul would have seen social media and Twitter, he would know that what he's asking of us is too far. But we believe that Scripture is sufficient for us, even today. And so that means I don't believe that Paul would change his recommendation. Even though we are in two separate cultures, the one thing that is not different is people. In our proclivity to sin, and our proclivity to think higher of ourselves than we ought. So before we dive in, let's remember what we learned last week. A few things. First, Corinth is a multicultural church, right? Here, if we look around us, we are pretty much of the same demographic, the same social class, and the same area. Not the same for Corinth. Corinth had multiple races, multiple different types of people that were gathering together, different backgrounds, different religions, and they've all laid it down to follow Christ Jesus. This is right, what we would think, for division. Second, we know that Paul spent 18 months with them. So Paul's not just writing a letter to people that were there just for a little while that might know of Paul. No, they know him well. Paul stayed with them for a long time. He lived with them. He worked with them. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this that your meetings do more harm than good. It hurts. But we saw last week how Paul opened up his letter by still calling them saints, that they are set apart, sanctified in Christ Jesus, being held blameless until the last day. It's remarkable. Paul has a very high view of the church because he has a very high view of Jesus. So today, we have a few objectives. We're going to be looking uh, all throughout kind of chapters 1 through 3 because Paul is going to be continuing this line of argument and this thinking. But here's our goals for this morning. What types of division is Paul addressing? Second, what is Paul's solution for division? And then how do we apply Paul's words for us today? If you remember one thing from this morning, here's what I want you to remember. It's the next slide. Let those who boast boast in Christ Jesus. You here this morning, you will never graduate from grace. 
you will never graduate for your need from grace. And so there is instantly a humility that comes with that, knowing that we are in need of Christ Jesus, that we position ourselves in front of the cross, clinging to grace. You'll never graduate from it. You will always need grace. Let those who boast, boast in Christ Jesus. We often think that our sin is isolated. But there are much deeper, deeper implications to the way that we live our life. And Paul's going to extend this metaphor later in the letter that our sin doesn't just affect us, but it affects the entire body. My sin doesn't just affect me. It affects my wife. It would affect my children. It would affect our church. Our sin is not isolated. It has long-lasting implications. So we're going to read uh, 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. It'll be on the screen, but I encourage you to open up in your Bible as well. It says this. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters... Some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, well, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power." Why don't we pray uh, this morning before we continue on? Jesus, this morning, I pray that we are hit with the gravity of the high calling of your word, uh, that we be united in, in mind and thought. And so this morning, Jesus, this is going to take deep reflection for each of us to see where we are tempted to pride, where we are tempted to think of ourselves higher than we ought. We are tempted to maybe put down someone else in the church or think less of them for some reason. So Jesus, I pray that by your spirit, you have your way with us this morning, that you soften our heart and our mind to hear what you have to say through your word. Father, help us to follow you. Help us to deny ourselves and follow you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so after Paul has left, there have been divisions that have risen among the church. And Paul starts off by asking this rhetorical question. Is Christ divided? Well, no, he's not divided. This is a rhetorical question by Paul because we know Christ isn't divided. Here's what Paul's point is, is that there is a direct correlation between Christ and his church, between Christ and his bride. And when we live in rancor and bitterness and enmity with one another, we are not only sinning against one another, we are also sinning against Christ. This elevates 
the level. Think of who's writing this. It's Paul. He's on his way uh, when, when Saul actually gets converted. What does the Lord Jesus say to him on the way? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The way that Jesus sees this is as Saul is persecuting the church. He's not just persecuting individuals or a body of believers. He's actually persecuting Christ. So when we hear Paul's words about division and slander, we could almost input these words to say, if Jesus were to come into our church, he would say, John, John, why are you slandering me when I slander another brother or sister in Christ? John, John, why are you putting me down when we put someone else down in Christ Jesus? Paul is elevating the view of one another, that we are his bride, we are Christ Jesus, and this means we should take careful watch and guard over our words. Paul knows this better than anyone, and his words, you know, have a a sharp pain for him. He persecuted the church, and now he is swinging to say there should be no divisions at all among Christ. Is he divided? Can you take a little of Christ and you take a little of Christ? No, his bride is not divided. Why is this a division among the church? Because people are swaying to particular teachers. And this is human nature. We drift towards people and teachers and things that make us comfortable or that we just naturally enjoy. If you poll the room, there is most likely favorite Bible teachers all among us that Uh, we like to listen to their sermons or their podcasts. They're they're a part of different ministries. And some of us in here might say, well, I like to listen to Tim Keller. And others would say, well, I'm an Adrian Rogers guy. And in the middle, you might have people that say, well, John MacArthur is my man. And what will happen is that we will so identify with these teachers and their ministries and the way that they practice their ministry that it'll actually start to begin to divide us because they might emphasize certain things that others don't. And it'll start to push one another away because I follow this man and I believe that he has the correct view and an interpretation of scripture and I just follow him. And what happens is that we even start to get divided among the church. And Paul says, no, Christ is not divided. Does following a particular teacher who automatically lends to a different style and focus, does it automatically cause us to pull away from the church? No. But in the age of social media, in the age of where we just have free time to argue theology in particular points, it begins to put dividing walls up where people cannot penetrate. People cannot have normal, honest conversation because my guy says this and your guy says that. Think about it with politics. Some might say, well, I follow the conservatives because this is the way Jesus would walk. And some say, no, 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 no. Jesus was a social justice guy. I follow the liberals. And Paul would say, is Christ divided? He would say, were the Republicans crucified for you? Were the liberals crucified for you? No. Why then would we put such allegiance with a man or a political party? Our allegiance is to Christ Jesus. I've, I've heard it said uh, f- uh, among uh, Christians 
that Jesus is too conservative for liberals and he's too liberal for conservatives, but do not think he is moderate. He is Christ. He is Lord over all. We follow Jesus. We're baptized in Jesus' name. His will be done. His kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Second thing, Paul is not condemning the teachers Apollos, Apollos and Peter here. In fact, he includes himself in this list to make this point, that the divisions were entirely the fault and pride from the Corinthians. Paul did not find fault with the theology of Peter or Apollos. In fact, Paul is going to specifically say later in the letter in 1 Corinthians uh, that he encourages them to come and visit Corinth. But this does not mean that Paul is saying anyone who comes in the name of Christ is a teacher to be approved and listened to. This is a distinction that's going to be made elsewhere in Scripture, but I think it's important for us to make this distinction now. Paul is saying that these three men, they have good theology. Uh, Two, we know, Paul and Peter, have seen the risen Lord. Peter walked with the Lord for three years. But Paul is saying, do not let these divisions come among you because of these men. And one last thing that we should consider. Are any of these men here locally uh, pastoring the church? Paul was there for a little while, uh, but Apollos and Peter, they're not there. They're not pastoring this local body here. And this is where I think that we need to have um, some self-reflection. We live in a wonderful age, a wonderful age, where good biblical teaching is readily available to us at a moment's notice. I mean, it's in my pocket. Every time I sit in the car, a new Bible teacher's coming on just because I have it programmed to play. I love listening to guys like The Bible Project or Tim Keller. I have grown in my knowledge of Scripture from them. I'm incredibly thankful for them. But on the flip side of this, that's not discipleship. Attending a church online or listening to your favorite Bible teacher or sermon, this is not discipleship. Consuming sermons from a distant church, from a distant pastor who does not know you, who you do not know, who you are not in fellowship with, you may grow in knowledge, but you're not going to be discipled. Discipleship takes a local church with local pastors, with local people who you know, who knows you, and who can look you squarely in the eye and say, I see what you're saying, but it's off. I see how you've reasoned it out this way. I see where you're going, but you're wrong. Who can go into you and say, brother, man, you are in in sin right now. The sermons you consume online, they cannot speak into your life that way. Discipleship takes a local church. It takes people who will get into the muck and mire and mess of our lives collectively to walk together with a body. Furthermore, you can sit in a pew every Sunday and not be a part of the church. You may be physically present, but divided emotionally, spiritually, Podcasts, sermons on TV, sermons on the radio, devotionals at home are not the church. Are they good for learning? Absolutely. I would never tell you, you know, don't, don't do a devotional, don't read your scriptures, don't listen to good teachers. But they can also divide. 
when they elevate us to say, well, you know, uh, Keller's church, it does ministry this way, and I think we should do it this way as well. No, this is the local church in our local context, in our local community, where we are serving one another and serving the community. It's a local church. A local church takes discipleship. You need to be involved in a local church. Now, I can hear some pushback, maybe, that says, well, what about the homebound? What about those who have been harmed by the church and they have great anxiety coming into the church? And those are all legitimate questions. And I'm not up here saying that this is a one-sized-fits-all answer. I mean, there are people who have been physically abused by clergy or people within the church that have serious emotional damage. And for them to come into a church building like this morning takes great emotional, spiritual, physical courage for them. Uh, What I'm not saying is that if they're not here on Sunday, they're in sin, they need to repent and come in and just get over it. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that this is a great opportunity for us to mobilize as a church, to walk alongside those who weep, weep with those who weep. Think about those who are homebound because of their health, because they physically cannot make it from their home or the nursing home to our church. But we ever say, well, they're in sin because they're not here on Sunday morning, they can't make it. No, this is a great opportunity for us to identify those within us that we know to go to them, to serve them, to walk alongside them. So Paul asks the question about, is Christ divided? But then Paul is going to lay down the hammer, and he asks this, was Paul crucified for you? And you could continue the thought. Was Apollos crucified for you? Was Peter crucified for you? Were the Bible Project? Was Tim Keller? Was John MacArthur? Were they crucified for you? No. See, here Paul reminds the Corinthian believers that their life in Christ is so inextricably bound up with what happened one Friday afternoon outside the gates of Jerusalem when Jesus was impaled on a Roman cross. Why does he bring up the cross at this point? Because the cross is where all bragging stops. The cross is where all pride and bragging stops. We can't come to the Lord and say, well, look at what I've done. Look at my ministry. Look at how successful my church was. At the cross, all bragging stops. It's all about what Christ Jesus has done. Paul will say, let those who boast, boast in the Lord. So the question, why, why are we divided? The cross needs no assistance. Christ crucified, God become fleshed, the all-powerful, omnipotent one becoming a child, the holy one spit on, the one the angels worship beaten, the one who they can't look on his face and live is stripped naked on a cross for the wrath of God to be satisfied in him so that we might be called sons and daughters. And this is how Paul addresses them. 
because he wants them to clue into this. You are sons and daughters for a reason. Why are there divisions among you? You see, there's a lot of ways that we could try and attempt to grow our church. We can attempt to draw in people by waging culture wars, where every Sunday we just speak out against the culture. Well, what do you think we need to keep those people with? By speaking out against the culture and culture wars. If we draw people into our church by playing really modern songs and having a really modern service, what do you think we'll keep them with? Really modern songs. Whenever we swing back traditional or whether we swing, whatever your preference is, whenever we lose that preference, we lose that identity, we'll lose the people if that's what we win them with. If we draw people in because of a certain ministry, because we do things a certain way, we must keep them with that. And this is why Paul says, we preach Christ and him crucified. That's it. In chapter 2, Paul's going to come and say, when I was with you, I came with you in fear and trembling. And the only thing that I sought to know, the only thing is to know Christ and him crucified. There is this distilling that Paul wants us to get down to, that we preach Christ and him crucified, and when we push into that, when we push into knowing that, that we find our true selves in Christ Jesus. If you look behind you, you'll see above us uh, this motto that we have for our church. It's to know him and to make him known. This is not simply just for cute decoration as we walk out of the church every morning. This is what our objective is. It's to know Christ in him crucified. And when we do that, that we extend his love and grace and generosity to others. This is a passage uh, this week uh, that I've, I've had to sit on for a while. Because like I said earlier, to be perfectly united in mind and thought, it just Honestly, it seems unreasonable. It seems impossible. But Paul is going to make an argument of how we do this. But first, before we do that, there's two things that this does not mean. This does not mean that we just find people that we agree with, that we just bring everybody in, and it's okay. Like, we don't have, we might have some differences, but we'll just overlook them, and we won't talk about it. We'll just be hush about it. It's not what Paul's saying. Does this mean that all disagreements are off the table? It does not. First, uh, it's the way to true Christian unity cannot be purchased at the expense of moral purity. Christian unity cannot be purchased at the expense of moral purity. Paul's going to address this in this letter very strongly uh, about how we live our lives with our bodies and how we uh, walk alongside one another. We, we do not live in this age, this postmodern age, where every truth is your own truth, and we can just do whatever we want to that makes us happy. No, there is a, there is a purity that Christ has called us to. We divide over these things. The second, Christian unity cannot be purchased at the expense of theological integrity. If we ever get to a point where we start to wane on the deity of Christ, we divide. When we, when we start to say things like, well, Jesus really didn't claim to be God. No, we, we divide over those things. 
when we say things like, well, I don't know about the resurrection, if that really happens, we divide over those things. There are things that we divide over. There is truth that we can know. And Christ says that that truth is him. So we, we push into knowing truth. We push into knowing Christ. What Paul does answer for us in the upcoming arguments about how we achieve this unity, how we achieve perfect unity in mind and thought, Paul is going to address in three ways. The wisdom of God, what is known, Christ and him crucified, and the mind and thought of Christ. He's going to outline all of this. This morning, we're just going to look at the wisdom of God, and then, then we'll end. I'm going to read a long portion of Scripture for us, starting in verse 18 in chapter 1. Paul makes it clear that ultimate wisdom comes from God. He says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish thing of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and, he despi and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We, as a culture, we, we have lost um, we have lost the image of the cross and what it meant uh, for first century people. Paul holds up something that is utterly despicable, contemptible, and values, valueless by any modern standard for the cross of Christ. For 2,000 years, the cross has been transformed into this decorative imagery that we put in the house. And I've always, always kind of bothered me a little bit. I'm not going to judge anyone if you have a cross hanging in your house, but we'll decorate it. We'll put flowers around it. We'll have multiple crosses on a wall, and we'll just think how lovely it is. But for the people in the first century, to even mention the cross was like cursing someone. In fact, they wouldn't even say the punishment for cross. They wouldn't say it. They would rather, they devised a phrase that said, 
hang him on the unlucky tree because it was so horrific, it was so detestable that you would not whisper it in polite company. It was a brutal execution for the dregs of society. And Paul has declared that this is the proper basis for exaltation in the cross and the cross alone. Paul says what people despise, what they won't even look on, this is what we look to, that Christ has been crucified for us. Let those who boast, boast in Christ Jesus. You will never graduate from grace. So how, do, how are we perfectly united in mind and thought? The first way is to see that we bring nothing to the table. We have nothing to bring. Paul said that he is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. We humble ourselves in that regard. And when we boast in the Lord, four things happen. First thing is that we lose our, self, our sense of self-righteousness. We lose our ability to think that we have made our self-righteousness. Paul has said that he is our righteousness. The second thing is that we lose our sense of self-fulfillment, that within John or within my life that I have this certain purpose and role to fulfill and I'm so awesome and great and I just need to find that and fulfill it. No, Paul says Christ is our holiness. Christ is the one that sets us apart. When we boast in the Lord, we lose our sense of self-fulfillment. We've been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Third, we lose our sense of self-satisfaction, and this should be a great relief to us because many times in our lives, we have tried to satisfy our life, whether it be hobbies or sports or food or drink or whatever it is. In Christ Jesus, we can find our satisfaction in him. And when we boast in the Lord, we lose our sense of self-priority, that it's my way or no way. And this is a common theme that is traced throughout Scripture. Think of Luke 9, where Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Or Paul, in 2 Corinthians, he's going to say, For all have died, and that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake was died and raised. For Galatians, in Galatians 2.20, Paul says this. We, you might know it by memory. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is I that no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. For us to be perfectly united in mind and thought, for us as a church to be perfectly united in mind and thought, we must daily deny ourselves and look to Christ Jesus. This is not easy. <laughs> it's not easy. And Jessica and I, we will have disagreements. Why? Because I want it to be done my way. Well, this is the way that we've done it. We've done it in my family for years, and we should continue to do it this way because I like it this way. For us in Christ Jesus, for us as a church, for us to be perfectly united in mind and thought, we must lay down our right, lay down ourself, and follow him. Now, this takes a lot of serious self-reflection to see where in us we have these pockets of pride that will want to bubble up. But let me give you some tips here on self-reflection. Self-reflection with uncertainty leads to anxiety. 
Maybe you've had this. Self-reflection with uncertainty leads to anxiety. This would be like, you know, what is God doing in my life? Why does my life seem out of control? Is he in control? What am I doing? What control do I even have when we have all of this uncertainty? What's next in my life? Where am I supposed to go? It leads to anxiety. We get anxious. We don't know what to do. Self-reflection with despair leads to depression. How can God love me? Doesn't he see what the foolish mess that I've made, what good is there in my life, what hope is there. When we have despair, when we see nothing good at all, nothing that's happening that's good, it can lead us to depression. Self-reflection with accusation leads to agony. Maybe you've been here. Why am I so foolish? Why have I ruined my life? If I just would not have made that decision and that mistake, what an idiot I am. Why did I do this? Self-reflection with accusation leads to agony. But Paul is going to call us to have self-reflection through the cross and the resurrection. Because Jesus lives, we live for Jesus. So consider this. Self-reflection with uncertainty, with uncertainty still. We don't know all the days are ahead of us. Yet trusting in the goodness and the kindness of God, seen in the cross of Jesus, leads us to repentance. Scripture tells us that it's the kindness of the Lord that draws us to repentance. When we see the love of God displayed on the cross in Jesus, it should lead us to repentance. Uncertain times still, yes, but I trust in the one who numbers and holds my days in his hand. Second, self-reflection with despair, but remembering the love of the Lord in Christ Jesus displayed on the cross leads to joyful contentedness. Oh, wretched man that I am, how can God love me? What good is in my life? The hope of the gospel is that while I was still dead in my sins and transgressions, Christ Jesus died for me. He died for you. He died for his bride. This leads us to a joyful contentedness. Will there still be seasons where we just are tempted to despair? I don't understand. I don't know how it's working out. Yes, but we reflect on the loving kindness displayed on the cross. Self-reflection with accusation, but believing all of our guilt was laid on him at the cross leads us to hope. Self-reflection with accusation. Like we can have an honest view of ourselves to say, I, I have really, I've, I've really messed this up. And it is no one's fault but my own. And for some reason, like I, I continue to like operate in this way. Paul will say in Romans that he does the things that he does not want to do, and that seems like it's just ever present in our life. Self-reflection with accusation, but Believing all of our guilt was laid on him at the cross leads to hope. See your entire life placed and transferred with Jesus, that it's no longer my life but Christ who lives in me. When we do this, when we see Christ in him crucified, we will come to him humbly, and all that we are left with is boasting in the Lord and what he's done. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know. We talked last week about baggage, about what baggage that we bring into the church every morning or what baggage follows us around 
every week, but you know the wonderful thing about what Paul says is that we get to boast in that. We boast in our weakness because it's nothing that I could have done. It's all for Christ. It's all what Christ has done. I don't celebrate my baggage. I don't continue to add to my baggage if I can help it. But I boast in my weakness because Christ is strong and he loves you and he loves me. The gospel is this, that you are more sinful than you know, but you are more loved in Christ Jesus than you could imagine. Come to him, call on the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray, um, it is going to be tempting for us still uh, to divide and to argue and to, to know how things work out in our lives. And so, Jesus, I pray that you give us wisdom in your word in James. You say that you generously give wisdom to all who ask. Just come to you in faith and believe. So, Father, I pray that you give us wisdom as a church on how we can pursue perfectly unity in mind and thought so that as people who peer into Alpine, they see that we are not a church that's just battling culture wars or just doing something that's silly just to try to draw an audience, but, Father, that we just preach you crucified and the hope that we have in the cross. Father, help that to mark our days. Father, teach us to number our days. Teach us to value and love one another because of your great love for us. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who has not placed their hope in you, Father, who has not just come and said that I believe in Christ Jesus and I place it all on you, Father, I pray that you call them this morning. I pray that you, you bring them to yourself. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. It's your name we pray. Amen.